Amen. As we go to prayer, I want to invite you just to take a seat. Normally we remain standing at this time, but I'm going to invite uh, just Missy, if you just play for a moment. Um, you know, I, I've said to you before that as we sometimes as we go through the worship service, I'm always looking for threads to see what God's doing. Usually that's just to uh, reassure my own fearful heart to, that God's really in it and it's not just us. And and uh, sometimes I look for him and sometimes he just drops him in my lap. And today, uh, this morning has been the latter because I don't know if you've noticed it, but I feel like God has revealed a theme to me this morning um, uh, about how much we matter to him. And, and we're going right into that in the scriptures here in just a moment. Um, I've seen it in the, the scriptures that we've read, Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? I heard it really profoundly. It's where the Lord sort of uh, impressed it on me as Mike was sharing in communion just very vulnerably and sincerely from his heart. And who doesn't know that feeling of, of either wanting to be invisible or feeling like we are invisible? Like maybe our stuff doesn't matter, that maybe we've been overlooked or forgotten. And as I was thinking about all that, I was reminded of a story. I'm not going to tell the story. You can read it on your own. It's in Genesis 16, but it's, a, it's about a woman named Hagar who um, was mistreated uh, she was told one thing, and then another was done to her, and uh, finally she was banished. She was a, a handmaid of Sarah, who was married to Abram, and uh, she was sent away into the wilderness. And it says in Genesis sixteen seven that an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, that would be Jesus, found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, and he began to ask her questions, and and a conversation unfolded, and, and, and the gist of that conversation was simply this, you haven't been forgotten. You've been mistreated, but not forgotten. You've been abused, but not forsaken. And then God made her these incredible promises, and, and when all that was said and done, it says in Genesis 16, 13, then she, Hagar, called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, the God who sees she actually said, you are the God who sees. And that was really the point of that whole thing, all the blessings that the angel promised, all the things that were said to her. The message was this, you aren't forgotten. In fact, you're favored and blessed. You're chosen. And the same goes for us. What I want to do as we go to prayer is I'm going to pray for us, but I'm just going to ask you right now just to bow your head where you are. And I want you just to, to just sort of chew, meditate on that fact that God sees you. He is the God who sees. Now, a lot of times we talk about that and it scares the daylight out of us because we know God saw what we did and he heard what we said and he knows where we went and, and it inflicts all kinds of guilt. And, and maybe that's where you are today as God sees you and you need to confess that to him and say, Lord, I have. My feet have gone where they shouldn't have gone and my lips said what they shouldn't have said and I, my eyes saw what they shouldn't have seen and as the God who sees, I'm sorry. And I lay that before you. And then others of us, maybe we just want to rejoice and rest in that fact that we haven't been forgotten. We aren't overlooked, not forsaken. What I want you to do is just take the next 30 seconds in quiet, just as the music plays, and just talk to the Lord about the fact that he sees you. And just maybe you just begin and you just say, Lord, the fact that you see me, or because you see me, see my life, I want to thank you, I want to praise you, I want to come clean before you. It's not my chance to lead you in prayer. It's your chance to talk to God because he sees you and he listens to you. So right now, I just want you to tell him what it means to you this morning.
that he sees you. He knows you. And seeing the good and the bad and the ugly, he loves you. What does it mean to us that God sees us? Now I want to ask you to do one more thing before I pray and we transition into our study of God's word. I want you just to pray. Just say, just, I, I'm just going to trust that God is going to put somebody on your heart, in your mind at this very moment who needs to know that God sees them. It's a loved one. It's a friend. It's a believer who's hurting. It's an unbeliever who's rebellious or indifferent to God and say, God, would you prove to them today that you see them, that you know them, and whatever the world has told or done to them, you have a plan for them. Let's pray that God would reveal himself. God, show yourself today too. You just fill that blank in right now. Let's intercede for those who need to know that God sees them. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning that you are the God who sees. You are so many things in so many ways. Your, your word shows us, I suppose, limitless dimensions of your character, of, of your attributes. And Father, they all mean different things to us at different moments. But today, Father, I just, you've just impressed on me deeply that we need to be reminded that you see. And, and, and in seeing, you know, and in knowing, you care, and in caring, you love, and in love, you forgive. And in forgiveness, you renew and restore and cleanse and heal. And, and Father, no matter what we may have walked in here today, wanting to prove that, that we need to be seen, that we want to be seen so people will like us and respect us, wanting to be unseen because we're afraid of, of what they might do to us, Father, we just... Thank you that in Jesus all of that can be washed away and that our identity is in him is enough. Father, I pray for the broken hearts here this morning that they would know you, that our brothers and sisters in that place today would know you as healer. Father, I pray for the lonely hearts here today that they would know you as comforter and friend. Father, I pray for the, the sinful hearts, the ones even now that are saying, but I'm not going, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to come clean. Uh, to see that, that, that one more day of holding on to, to sin, to rebellion, is, is one more wasted day. And the person that it hurts outside of you is the most is, is ourselves. And Father, for those who came ready to worship, for those of us, Father, for whom the, the joy was already there, but it's amplified knowing that you see us. Father, thank you for that. We praise you. We love you. And, uh, and we thank you that you cared enough, as, as we've been reminded, to give us your son, to pay for our sin, to rise from the dead. And Father, that you cared enough for us to give us your word, the opportunity to meet and worship and, and see what you have to say to it in us together. Father, we thank you that we are your family and we want to see your family grow. Father, we want to see your family, your kingdom grow by leaps and bounds. And, and we know that that for that to happen, it doesn't just happen, you do it through us. And so, Father, I pray through our worshiping and our confessing and our praying and the preaching and the listening. And, Father, as we talked about last week, the, the doing of the word as well. Father, I pray that you would use us to glorify and magnify Jesus, that your kingdom might grow and more lips might sing your praise next Sunday than we're singing it this Sunday. Father, as we go to your word now, I know how much I need your help. And uh, Father, I'm excited to, to, to share what you've put on my heart, but I know that if it's going to do any good to any of us at all, we need the Holy Spirit. And so right now we invite him to come and be our teacher, to guide us in truth, 
to guard us from error, to deliver us from distraction, and to help us to see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning in the study of your word. May we see Jesus only this morning in the study of your word. And Father, when we walk out the door into this beautiful day, may it be rejoicing that whether the remainder of this day is a good one, a hard one, an ordinary one, or a magnificent one, that as children of the living God, um, we are seen and known and loved. Father, it's you we love, it's you we seek, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, as all God's children said together, amen, amen. All right, well, boys and girls, I am not going to make you wait today to go to children's church, so it's time to go. Five-year-olds, six-year-olds, first graders, second graders, y'all head on out to children's church this morning. As I invite the rest of you to, to grab your Bible right, ever, right where it is, right there with you, in whatever form you have it. And I want you to turn in your Bible with me this morning to the book of Ruth. I want you to meet me in your Bible this morning in the book of Ruth, which as I hinted at, or I guess I probably just outright said it last Sunday, is uh, one of the two books we are going to spend the next several months studying God's Word together on Sunday morning in the books of Ruth and of Esther. And, and, and I'm going to tell you all about why that is. Today is very much a, a groundwork sort of sermon just to, to figure out what we're doing here and where we're going. But I'll just even preface that as you're finding your way in your Bible and getting everything situated that you need to get situated for the next little while. I'll tell you that this is a study that I have looked forward to and been chewing on and praying about for a very, very long time. And by a very, very long time, I mean a couple of years that that I, I just that God gave me that idea, and then things kept coming up to get in the way, and things kept coming up to get in the way, and and you know what those many of those things are just the things of life and the things of our world, and and God's had other things for us to to, to study in the Bible, uh, but the time has come, and I am so incredibly excited about what we're going to be doing or what God's going to be doing in us and among us through his word over the next few months. And I do just really feel energized and excited to share it with you today. Uh, first, we're going to spend about seven or eight weeks in the book of Ruth walking through this story together. And uh, of course, Easter's going to come in the middle of all that, so we'll break along the way uh, momentarily for that. And then we're going to jump right out of Ruth, as you can see, into Esther. And I think we're going to be both challenged and encouraged by what the Lord has to say to us uh, through these two incredible Old Testament stories. And typically, is, this is the point where I would read the Scripture, where we'd look at our passage together. Uh, but this morning, again, because today is a, a bit of introduction, a bit of background, a bit of groundwork, uh, I want you just to hold your spot in your Bible, and we're going to read the first few verses of Ruth chapter 1 in a moment. But before we get there, I want to start this morning by asking you a question. And it's not a complicated question. You'll know the answer to it immediately. But the question is this. Does one ordinary human life matter? Given what we just prayed about, <laughs> given what we just talked about, the question I want to begin with this morning is, does one ordinary, any one ordinary human life matter? And of course, the easy answer, the correct answer to that question is yes, every life matters. Every life, no matter how ordinary, matters. And that is for reasons far too numerous to take the time to mention here. However... As Christians, 
As believers in who are seeking to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that it is vital for us to flesh out our answer, our response to that question further in this sense. Not just the the, the sort of concrete, simple question, does one ordinary human life matter, but rather in this sense, how much? How much does one ordinary human life matter? Specifically, how much does it matter to God? How much does one ordinary human life matter to God? And furthermore, I'm going to give us a compound sentence here, a compound two-part question. What can God accomplish through one ordinary human life that is yielded to him? How much does one life matter to God and what can God do When that life, your life, my life, your kid's life, is yielded to him. And the reason I ask you to consider that with me is because that is very much the question we're going to be addressing the next several months as we we walk through the only two books in the Bible that are named for women, the books of Ruth and Esther. And what we're going to see as we go through it, and you can see it, it's already there on the screen behind me, what we are going to discover about these two women as we explore their stories, we see how God worked in and through and around and among them, is that these are two women who in every sense of the word were genuinely world changers. These women were two world changers, and they were world changers despite the fact that on the surface, and objectively speaking, their lives and their circumstances could not have been more different from one another. For example, now there's a long list here, I'm going to share more of this with you in the weeks to come, but even just for example, this morning, these two women, though both world changers, could not have been more different in the sense that, that while on one hand the story of Ruth is a story that unfolds in a in a setting of of grinding poverty, Esther's story is a story that that unfolds in in the context of incredible, fabulous royalty. You've got poverty, and you've, you've got royalty. The story of Ruth, as we'll begin to discover this morning, is really just the story of one ordinary family. The characters are few. Their impact would appear on the surface to be slight. But then you go to the story of Esther, as we'll do a couple of months from now, and what you discover there is that that is a story of one woman that unfolds in the context of, of a massive empire. You've got one ordinary family. Here you've got an entire empire. Some would argue one of, if not the most powerful empire on the face of the earth at the time in history in which Esther's story unfolds. In Ruth, you've got the story of of a Gentile woman living her life in Israel. In Esther, you've got the story of of a Hebrew woman, her story unfolding in exile. And again, the comparisons and the contrasts go on from there. But what's more curious still And this is something I think we'll see frequently as we go through the story as well. At least curious to me. It may not be curious to you. But one of the more curious things about their two stories is this, that when you look at them closely, when you study them objectively and pay attention to what's really going on in them at both of these women's books, the book of Ruth and the book of Esther, one of the things you discover, this may come as news to you, is that neither one of them is the main character in the book that bears their name. That actually... The books of Ruth and Esther, if there is such a thing as a main character in the traditional, in the the familiar sense, it's somebody else. And yet the books bear their name. Why? Well, there's an answer to that question. It's a good and it's an important answer to that question. And it is this, that though 
There are other characters whose lives and hearts and situations we see more of than we do of Ruth or Esther. We learn plenty about them, but there's just people about whom we learn more. The fact of the matter is the reason Ruth is named for Ruth and Esther is named for Esther is because of the redemptive role that God chose for them to play. The redemptive role. The reason Ruth and Esther get top billing is because each one played a redemptive role, the roles through which they became world changers. We're going to pay close attention to that because, of course, the whole story of the Bible, the whole story of our faith is a story of redemption. And that's what Ruth and Esther are all about. Now, as to the book of Ruth specifically, since that's where we're starting this morning, there's a, a couple of things by way of context that may be helpful to you, know, you, you, for you to know. You know that context matters to me. I talk about it all the time. But since we're just going to sort of parachute in and start reading in verse 1, just a little bit of background I think might be helpful so you understand what's going on here as the story begins. So just real, three real quick facts I want you to know about the book of Ruth before we read the text. The first of which is this, that the story of Ruth, as it will say in chapter 1, verse 1, is a story that occurred during the time of the judges. If you know a little bit about Old Testament history, you know that that's after the days of, of the patriarchs, after the days of Joshua and entering the promised land, the days of the judges, which, and we don't know which judge it, it occurred under, which of the judges was, was having their story or their leadership, turn of leadership unfold. We just know that that's when it happened, roughly the 12th or 11th century B.C., interestingly, secondly, most of the story of Ruth, at least after chapter 1 is complete, takes place in Bethlehem. Yes, that Bethlehem. Bethlehem of Judea. The city of King David. The city of Christ's birth. It all happens in Bethlehem. And that furthermore, the third thing I want you to know before we dig in is that we don't have any idea who wrote the book of Ruth. Ideas have been suggested. Possibilities have been floated. But if you look at the text and the rest of the Bible, we don't know who wrote it. But what we do know about whoever, the man or woman who wrote this book, we know that they were, or we will see, that they were an extremely gifted storyteller. An anonymous but extremely gifted storyteller. In fact... Many literary scholars down through the centuries, both sacred and secular, people who love the Lord and follow him and people who don't, many literary scholars consider Ruth to be among, if not, if not the greatest short story ever written. And, and again, as we walk through it, you'll begin to see why. It is also, I might add, a story far more spiritually challenging than it appears to be at a first or even a second reading. And as that reality began to sort of press in on me, as I said, I've been thinking about this study for a long time. I believe God's been working on me with this study for a long time. But as I began to realize how, how truly challenging, daunting a task it would be, uh, one of the things I did was a couple of weeks ago, I pulled together the leaders of our women's ministry team. And I said, would you all help me with this book, with this sermon series, looking at the books of, of Ruth and Esther together? Because these are books about women, and I'm a guy. And I don't know if you've noticed, but we don't, as guys, always understand the ladies in our lives and, and, and how their hearts are wired. And I said, I need some insight here from people who might be able, from ladies, from women who might be able to, to see things in the story that, that I as a pastor, that we as men might not otherwise see. And it was immensely helpful. In fact, I, I plan to do it again a couple of times before this story's over just so they can keep me honest and faithful in, 
in what we're looking at. And in fact, I'm going to quote a couple of them this morning. I've given them fair warning about that as well. But, but all of that to say, bottom line is this. Here's what I want you to know ultimately as we begin our study of Ruth this morning, which is that at its core, Ruth. Ruth is the story, and I want you to get this, so I think we're going to throw it up on the screen here behind me. Ruth is the story of God's activity in one ordinary, otherwise unnoteworthy family. Get this, in a time, see if this rings familiar, in a time of moral chaos, pathetic leadership, meager faith, and human suffering. You think this might have something to say to us today? Ruth is the story of an ordinary family, a not famous, unnoteworthy family, of God's work in and through them, God's activity in a time of moral chaos, that's the judges. Pathetic leadership, that was the judges. Meager faith, that certainly marked the era of the judges and human suffering. Or as one of the women I met with a couple of weeks ago said, the book of Ruth is, as Christians, is all about simply waking up each day and doing what must be done. It's about living life as a, a follower of God in a fallen world. And so to that end, there are three things I want you to take note of with me this morning. Three things in this story we're going to take note of this morning. The first of which is this, and as soon as I tell it to you, we'll read the text. But that the story, the book of Ruth begins which, with what can rightly be termed a series of unfortunate events. The story of Ruth begins, the setting is a series of deeply unfortunate, even tragic events. Events. With that said, I'm going to begin reading God's word. Now, Ruth 1, verses 1 through 5, this is what our Bibles say. It says, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, the land of, of Israel. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab. Moab was Gentile territory. It was about 50 miles to the east across the Dead Sea from the land of Israel. And he did so with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites, Epaphra was the, the region around Bethlehem, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. And the woman, that is Naomi, was bereft of her two children and also of her husband. Now, I think you'd agree with me when I say to you that's an awful lot of suffering in just five verses. It's an awful lot of trouble and an awful lot of heartache. And furthermore, I think if you look closely at those five verses, you see that any time any sort of glimmer of hope began to rise, any time it looked like their fortunes, as it were, were about to change Something else, something worse, came along to crush it. You've got famine. You've got exile. You've got the death of a husband. You've got the death of, of two children, two adult children. And, and what we need to see is what that means is by the end of verse 5, what we're shown of Naomi, and there is a very real sense in which Naomi is, is the true central character in, uh, in the book of Ruth, 
But what we we need to recognize at the end of verse 5 is that when we get to that point, and this is what the author means us to see, this is why he or she is such a great storyteller, is leaving us at sort of a cliffhanger point where we have Naomi, a widowed, childless refugee. A widowed, childless refugee, which is bad enough in his own right. It would be bad enough to be a widowed, childless refugee at any point in time, at any place on the globe. But what made it even worse, what compounded the problem further, was that in those days, to be, to be Jewish, to be a Hebrew, and to be childless, to have no heirs, that was considered a catastrophe. Because it meant the family line was going to die out. The line of Elimelech and his ancestors before him would very soon be no more. In other words, we're supposed to see it really can't get much worse than this for Naomi. Now, when stuff like that happens today, when hardship, maybe successive hardships happen today in people's lives, or we see it on the news, or we become aware of it in some other fashion, I'd like to suggest to you that the best that most people can do to make sense of such occurrences, of the tragedies and hardships that come people's way in life, the best most people can do is to say, well, I guess that's just sometimes how it goes, right? Life is hard. Life isn't fair. Some people suffer more than others. We don't really know why, but, but what you've got to do is just figure out how to, how to best play the hand you're dealt, right? I mean, that's the best that most people can do with the problem of suffering in human lives. And, and frankly, even those who say they may not be believers or followers of Jesus Christ, but who would profess to say, well, everything happens for a reason. When you press them, they can't give you one. That's a... That's what the world, that's the best the world can do with something like this. And frankly, there's a sense in which you might be persuaded that even even the way the author of Ruth writes these first five verses might sort of kind of support that view, give some credibility to it. Because in the original Hebrew, well, and as it comes into English, this is the way it reads. I read to you the beginning of verse one, now it came about. Your Bible might say, now it came to pass. In other words, it just so happened. Once upon a time, long, long ago, in the land of Israel, it just so happened that what? A famine hit. And it just so happened that this one man named Elimelech and his family decided, we got to find some food, so it just so happened they chose Moab to go to. And it just so happened that, that when they got there, he died. And, and it just so happened that, that his sons found wives, and, and all looked pretty good for a while, and then it just so happened that But the two sons died, and on and on and on it goes. Again, that's that's just how life works sometimes. Again, the the text might suggest that that's what's happening here. And you know, while as Christians, listen, we know we're supposed to have better answers than the world does for stuff like this, right? Don't we all know that? I mean, we do know Jesus. We have our Bibles. We know it's in there somewhere. The fact of the matter is, and I say this as much for myself as I would for anyone else, when it comes to the question of why people suffer as they do, we know we're supposed to have answers, but oftentimes we don't. And it's probably because we haven't fully resolved it ourselves, maybe because of our own hurt, maybe because of our own suffering or the suffering of people we love, and we go, why? And listen, while I'm not so foolish to say that 
that grappling with and resolving such matters is easy. I am foolish enough to try for the next few weeks <laughs> to see what God's word says about this because I do believe that God's word has an answer. And it begins with, though, though I don't know that I could articulate it to everyone's satisfaction this morning, I know where it begins, and that's the second thing I want you to see in God's word this morning. That, that as we look at this series of unfortunate events, that coming to terms with the problem of suffering in this life for believers and unbelievers alike, but as followers of Jesus Christ, it begins, here's the second thing I want you to see, with a single indispensable truth. If you want to begin to work through the problem of trials, the problem of hardship, the problem of brokenness, it begins with one single indispensable truth, and it is this, three words, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Now, that isn't everything you need to know. That isn't the only thing. You need to know. But it is the place, I'm convinced with all my heart, it is the place we must begin. We must begin in grappling with all that happens in a broken world. Now, there's plenty of definitions out there of God's sovereignty to choose from. Here's the one that I will offer you this morning. Because it's what, what I mean when I say, in terms of what I'm able to understand about the sovereignty of God as revealed in the scriptures. It is this, God is in absolute rule over control of, and working everything. Everybody say everything. everything. Not most things. Everything out according to his plan, both in heaven and on earth. God is in absolute rule over, total control of, and working everything out according to his plan, both in heaven and on earth. In other words, it is what we mean when we say he is Lord. When we say he is Lord, we mean he is sovereign. He is in first place, and there isn't a second. He's sovereign. Now, the fact that we don't understand that, the fact that it raises as many questions as it answers, the problem that, frankly, let's be honest, some of you as you sit here this morning, listen to me, don't like it. You don't like the doctrine of God's sovereignty you push back against the doctrine of God's heart. Listen, the fact that we don't understand it or don't like it doesn't mean it isn't true. And the Bible supports it again and again and again. Now, for this morning, I don't want to explain it with a lot of comment. But I do want to give you just a sort of a taste of what the Bible says about it to show you that I'm not just making this up and this isn't something that hardcore theologians came up with. But, but this is a biblical truth and an important, rich biblical truth. I'm not going to throw these references on the screen, so if you want to study them on your own time, you're going to need to jot them down quickly. But, but here's some scriptural evidence for the, the reality of God's sovereignty, which again is what we're going to be exploring through the rest of Ruth and right on into Esther. Psalm 24.1, repeated verbatim by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.16, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Job 41.11, who is given to me that I should repay, says the Lord, for whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. 
Isaiah 45, verse 7. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Ephesians 1.11, we also, Paul is writing about us as believers, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his own will. In other words, let's make it simple. There's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as chance. We kid, around it, uh, kid about it around here a lot, but there's no such thing as a coincidence. Now, the Bible is equally clear that as men and women, as young people, we have freedom to choose, to choose right or wrong, good or bad, this or that, A or B. We do have the ability and the freedom to choose. The Bible is equally clear. The line runs all the way through the scriptures. And furthermore, the Bible is clear that we are responsible for the choices we make, both good and bad and where they lead. And, and that's where the doctrine of God's sovereignty becomes so complicated for many of us. But again, I'm not here to solve it today. I'm simply here to tell you that's what we're, gonna, that's what we're going after, much of what we're going after here today. Because what we're going to see is that even though God is sovereign over the story that, that, that very shortly here is going to encompass Ruth, and even though God is completely sovereign, was completely sovereign over the story of Esther that we'll get to uh, in the weeks to come, the fact of the matter is this, that within the context of God's sovereignty in those stories, both women had to make significant choices, major decisions. And here's the thing, and this goes back to what we were praying about, the choices they made mattered. The choices you make matter. The choices that I make matter. However, before we look at what this means for us today, and we're only going to do that briefly as well, but before we even get there to, okay, that may be what the Bible says, what am I supposed to do with it? There's one other thing I want to say about God's sovereignty. There's lots of other things I could say, but there's one I'm going to say, because when I sat down with the, the women's uh, ministry leadership team, this is the, the thing that more than any other kept coming back up in our conversation about God's sovereignty, and it is this, and I want you to remember this, because what I've said so far is, is hard truth in many ways. It is that the God of uncontested sovereignty is at the same time, in equal measure, the God of limitless love. He's Lord, but he is a loving Lord. He's God, but he is a compassionate God. I think if I remember right, it was read for us by Mike in communion. God demonstrated, the sovereign God demonstrated his own love for us. How? In that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And, and the reason I want to point that out at the beginning is not just to soften the, the teaching of God's sovereignty, but to, to flesh out the teaching of God's sovereignty, because what you're going to see as we go through Ruth's story is we are going to be unable to, to escape the reality, and again, this is something that one of the women in that conversation said, we will not be able to escape the reality of God's leading, God's care, and God's provision for this woman every single step of the way. Why? Because he is the God who sees He's the God who sees. So the story, the book of Ruth, begins with a series of truly tragic, unfortunate events. 
The way we begin to grapple with the reality that 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 isn't isolated to them, but it happens to all of us, is with this single indispensable truth that God is sovereign. Leading us to the third, the final, really the, the point of application I want us to take hold of today before we're done, which is this, that there is, third and finally, a choice that suffering always gives us. We need to talk about the choice that suffering always gives us because every time, even if it's momentary or it's massive, if it's personal or it's observational, we enter into someone else's pain because of what we see and hear. But the choice is this, it's a question. Can I trust God with my troubles? Can I trust God? Can I really trust God? with my troubles, or more candidly, maybe to put it in an earthier sense, does God even care about what happens to me? Because it sure doesn't feel like it today. Or it didn't feel like it when. Can I trust him with my troubles? Now, before answering that question, I want you to do your best to slip into Naomi's sandals at the end of verse 5. Because again, and this is what makes the author of Ruth such a great storyteller, there's a a momentary pause in the text. There's a change of scenery, but at the end of this scene, we need to recognize something, that at the end of verse 5, nothing's been resolved. Right? Nothing has been resolved. She is a widow. She's lost her children. She is an impoverished refugee not home in a foreign land. She has no idea where her life is going, and she has no idea if what she does next is going to make it any better. And frankly, the the track record of the previous 10 to 15 years would suggest that every time she did try to do something, it blew up in her face, right? Every time it looked like something was going to get better, something worse came along. But we do know where the story's going, or at least we will. Maybe you've never read the story of Ruth before. In very short order, if you don't already know, you do know what Naomi's, or you will know what Naomi's future holds. And because of that, here's what we know at the end of verse 5 that Ruth and Naomi specifically didn't. And it is this, that at the very moment when it seemed all was lost, there, there isn't any more hope to crush. There isn't anything worse, perhaps, that could happen was the very same moment that Naomi was actually positioned for a totally unexpected and glorious story to unfold. God had her right where he wanted her. For something spectacular to begin to happen. Meaning, as author David Atkinson says, that, quote, the God of the nations is also concerned about the ordinariness of a certain man of Bethlehem and his family in the time when the judges ruled. God cares. Why would it be any different for you? Why would it be any different for me? Why would it be any different for that friend, that loved one whose burdens you're carrying today? And and rightly so, you're praying for them. You're, You're aching for them. Why would it be any different? After all, there's another verse in the Bible about God's sovereignty. It's probably the best one, the one that we, many of us, know well. And it is this, that God causes how many things to work together for good? God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, again, we may not see that. 
We may have questions about that, but that doesn't mean it isn't so. Because it is. He causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And whether or not we trust that promise, well, that's the choice suffering always gives us. Will I trust God's promise? You know, one of the really cool secrets about Ruth's book, and I say secret because it's something we can't see in English but is there in the original Hebrew, is that, that actually the very first word in the Hebrew, the original of the story of Ruth, the very first word of the story is and. And it came to pass. And it came about. And it just so happened that this and that and the other thing took place. Furthermore, that's not an anomaly. There are seven other books in the Old Testament that begin, all of them narrative, that begin exactly the same way. They begin with the word and. Why should you care? Say, why should we care? You should care because what it means, what it signifies, is that Ruth's story, like your story, is part of a bigger story. History didn't begin the day any one of us was born. God's plan didn't begin the day we trusted Jesus. There is an eternal plan, a grand plan, a glorious plan, a plan of redemption, salvation, glorification. There's a bigger plan. It's all designed to turn people's attention to Christ. It's all designed to bring glory to Christ. And here's the ironic thing about it. That doesn't make your story less significant. It makes it more. And it came about that you were born. And it came about that thus and so happened to you. It came about that some trials occurred in your life. It came about that some blessings, but they're just part of a bigger story, God's story. A story that he wrote you into. A story that he intends you to be part of. A story that will not always be easy, but a story that will end in glory. It's a bigger story. It means our stories are more significant than we could have ever imagined. And because without meaning to spoil the ending of Ruth, for those of you who've never read it before, what that grand design, which ultimately brought David, and then through David, Jesus Christ into the world. You know what else it shows us, this story? It shows us God rescuing a Moabite woman from eternal lostness and a broken-hearted widow who got her joy restored. And that's why today's big idea this is also verbatim from my conversation with the women's ministry team. So I probably owe somebody a dollar or something like that. But it's this. God is near, and he can be trusted. God is near, and he can be trusted. And Father, I thank you this morning that that is a, a truth, a promise, a guarantee that isn't just for super spiritual people. Lord, it isn't even just a promise for those among us who've suffered more deeply than others. It's a promise for all of us every day, in every moment, in every situation. Father, when we're faced with a challenge we've never been faced with before, or we are asked to do the same thing we did a thousand times yesterday, a thousand times more today. You see us. 
You know us. You're in charge of our lives. And you love us. I want to just as our heads are bowed, I'll finish praying in a moment. What I I said here in the message is that there's a choice we have to make. And that choice is to decide, can God be trusted with my stuff? And I just want you right where you are to to grapple with that question. And I want you to be honest about it. I don't want you to do it because it's Sunday in church and it's the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do to trust him with your troubles. What you may need to do today is, well, maybe for some of us, just to say, Lord, thank you that there isn't some huge thing, but, but I can just trust you with the ordinariness of my life and day at this point in time. There are others of us here who are very much in Naomi's sandals, so to speak. And we need to affirm all over again, Lord, I'm going to trust you with it anyway. Because you are Lord and you are good. And there are some of you who need to say, Lord, I don't know how to trust you with this thing. And I need you to help me surrender and to yield. And I just want you to do right now whatever it is you need to do to thank him, to yield to him, to plead for his help with the stuff you're carrying. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning that none of us is invisible to you. And Father, far, far to the contrary, every one of us is of infinite, intrinsic value and worth to you. Your word says we are loved with an everlasting love. And Lord, that love is the same whether the sun is shining or there's heavy dark clouds. Father, that's, that's so good and encouraging to know. And Father, I thank you that you deal with us in the secret places of the heart. Father, that when our life is a series of unfortunate events, Father, that you are still on the throne. You are still working out a plan. You're still leading. You're still loving. And you're going to finish what you started. Father, we need the grace to trust you in these difficult days. Father, we can look at the big picture and say, yep, moral chaos, pathetic leadership, meager faith, and all the rest. But, Father, it was in that context that Ruth and Esther became world changers. We remember their names today, and we will through all eternity. Father, we want to join their company today. Not that we want our names to be proclaimed for all of eternity, but we want to walk with Jesus and be used by Jesus and trust you with our troubles. Father, I pray that you take the things of truth you've spoken here this morning, seal them up in our hearts, and then move them to our hands and feet and take all the rest and just let it slip away. But we leave looking to and rejoicing in the love of Jesus alone, in whose name we pray. Amen.